Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, melt me, mold me. Fill me, use me, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Amen. Psalm 18, that's where we are. This is a long psalm. Most of these have been pretty... uh, you can you can hold them in your finger in a sense, you know, hold it on one page. But this is one of our longer psalms. It's also one of our epic psalms. And this is a psalm that's quoted in other places in the Bible. It's always a good sign. So, why do I have a baseball glove with me? Um, so, most of you guys know that I am a baseball fan sort of a declining creature in this world, but um, I am, and I grew up playing baseball. I grew up playing um, and being trained by, um, uh, I I went to a baseball camp, Dusty Baker's School of Baseball, um, who actually was just leading the Astros in the playoffs just this year. But um, yeah, uh, I really liked it, and it was something I was kind of setting my future on. Obviously, someone of my stature and size had a lot against him, and so went the story. But, uh, yeah, but the baseball glove came to my mind when I looked at the lesson of this psalm. And I don't know how many of you played when you are young or have gone through getting a new baseball glove, but there's a process involved in this. Or, if you're a different sort, maybe um, a pair of leather boots, there's a process with those two. So these are super stiff when you first get them, and it's really hard to open and close. And I remember the agony of, I can't do it, and your hand's getting tired, and the ball would just kind of plop out of it because you couldn't close the glove around it. And there's this process of getting a baseball glove ready. And people had different methods, and I went through a couple in my lifetime. This is the one that's lasted the longest. Uh, this was that by far my favorite um, uh, there's, so you, you do the shaving cream trick, you put shaving cream on it and try to get it soft, or you do the, put it under your mattress and sleep on it, but if you're the princess in the pea, you're not going to go for that because you're going to feel it, um, or you, you have your dad back his car over the glove, so it just, like, creases it to death overnight, but even then it was still just, it, there was nothing you could do, uh, or you'd use the oil, the glove oil, and just oil it all up, and I did that several times with this guy. Um, but ultimately, there, there really, there really wasn't anything, you can leave it, there really wasn't anything you can do, um, except get it worked in, get it broken in, get it used. And so, of course, over time, the more you use your glove, and the more you're, you're molding it and playing with it, the more it starts to conform to your hand, and the, the more you can actually grab the ball, and the more you know the actual length of it, and you know what this thing can do, right? It becomes an extension of you. And, um, it takes time though. And so you have to break the glove in. You have to break it in. You can't keep it new, shiny, and crisp. 
No good ball player has a beautifully crisp and clean, just fresh from the factory looking baseball glove. Don't trust a base. Don't hit the. Don't throw the ball to someone with that glove. They're not going to catch it. They're not going to pick you up. You need the worn in one, the one where the strings have had to be retied a few times and there's scratches and scuffs and dirt and lots of spit and all kinds of stuff in the glove. That is my baseball glove. It's, it's been broken in, but in the process, it also has been, it's been breaking down. And sometimes that is exactly what happens in life is that our bodies begin to break down. But as our bodies break down, as Christians, we actually have hope and we can look forward to that because as our bodies break down, our souls break in. As our bodies break down, our souls break in. Now, that's not universally true with everyone. It is a truth the Christian can aspire to and hold on to. And in a culture that worships the deity of youth and of beauty and of strength, and in a culture that fears aging, and in a culture that sees no place for those who are irrelevant or out of it or of a certain age, that culture, our culture, is wrong. And the Christian hope, the Christian truth, God's vision for humans is that there's no age in which a person becomes irrelevant or useless. In fact, in the Christian tradition, speaking church history, and in the scriptures themselves, and in our view of what God has made us to be, we believe that as our bodies break down, our soul breaks in. Or in other words, sometimes... We don't look at people and see age, or we shouldn't look at people and see age. If someone's been walking with Christ and going through all the trials and the paths that Christ takes them on, we shouldn't see age anymore. What we should see instead is a sage. See, the Christian way believes that we have absolutely nothing to fear about another year in our life. That that as we get older, we actually wish we weren't getting younger. We look forward to growing up because God is doing something in the soul. He's creating old souls. And an old soul has always been that person that's of a different time, right? That person who doesn't seem to be with the times. The church, our country, our country needs people in the church. And the church needs people in it who are willing to age gracefully, not physically, That you can't necessarily help, but to age spiritually in a beautiful way, where as the body's breaking down, or as the things that we've been able to accomplish are breaking down, or as our understanding of the people and culture around us is breaking down, we find that our souls are like a well-used baseball glove and now can do the job they were crafted to do. So, in Psalm 18... We have this long title, To the Choir Master, a psalm of David, the servant of Adonai, who addressed the words of this song to Adonai on the day when Adonai rescued him from the hand of all his enemies. 
and from the hand of Saul. He said, and then it begins the psalm. Okay, this title, if you will, flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 22. Hold your place, of course, we'll be back. But 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel's to your left. Find Chronicles, Kings, Samuel in backward order. So go left, Chronicles, Kings, 2 Samuel 22. And you find in verse 1 the exact words we just read. And David spoke to Adonai the words of this song, or at least very close to those words. David spoke to Adonai the words of this song on the day when Adonai delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, and then it goes into our very psalm. The rest of Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 22 is Psalm 18, with a few slight variations. The Lord is, or Adonai, excuse me, is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. And he goes on, and then he ends. Verse 51, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Okay, the reason we went here, you're like, well, I could have read all that in Psalm 18. And you're right, you could have. The reason we're here is because we're not actually as interested in Psalm 20, excuse me, uh, 2 Samuel 22, as much as we are interested in the verses right before 2 Samuel 22. So hang left a little bit to the end of 2 Samuel 21 in verse 15. 21.15, it says this, There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. War again, the Philistines. They're like the New York Yankees for the Bostonians or Red Sox-Yankee rivalry, or Dodger-Giants rivalry, or Democrat-Republican rivalry. That's them. They're always at war. So they're at war again, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. David has done this hundreds of times. David was Israel's soldier, and now he's his king, and he always went out to battle with the Israelites. One exception When did David not go to battle with the Israelites? It was the very night when he saw Bathsheba bathing on her roof. He didn't go out and battle with his, with his comrades, with his nation, and he fell into adultery. David, other than that time, has always gone out. And he definitely, after that, kept going out with them. And so here he is, he goes out with them to war with the Philistines again, and yet, the last part of verse 15, David grew weary or exhausted. I looked up a bunch of translations, exhausted, tired. He, New King James, he grew faint. You see what's going on here? David, we're in, we're at the end of second Samuel. First Samuel, David is anointed to be the future king while Saul is this crazy king. David struggles under Saul's tyranny. Get rid of this young kid, this promising youth, this guy with all this strength and vigor, this guy who is a threat to my leadership. Hmm. It's often how we get when we start to feel age, isn't it? 
We feel threatened by youth. Or we want to silence the obnoxious. Saul didn't want David around. First Samuel is David's story of fleeing from Saul. Second Samuel comes around and Saul's dead. David is raised to the throne. David unites the tribes of Israel. David begins to expand the territory because David is the soldier who has ability, who has specialties, who brings victories to Israel. But now, well, we're at the end of 2 Samuel, and I don't mean to spoil the story, but David dies and Solomon takes over. And now we see David is getting old. <laughs> That's what it's saying. He's getting, he's an old fart out there. He can't do it. He's, he's lifting the sword. He's like, <gasps> he grows weary. He's, he's not the same soldier he was in his youth. David grew weary. And in verse 16, of course, this is going to be bad. You can't, you can't be tired on the battlefield. And Ishbi, Benob, one of the descendants of the giants. Remember the giants. David killed Goliath in his youth. Giants are nothing to David. I can take you. David did it with a slingshot. Now, this giant, whose spear weighed 300 shekels, I'm not sure how that translates, but uh, the message, which just basically put it as 80 pounds. So I don't know if that's how accurate that is, but that's a heavy spear. Um, I did the math and came up to 200 pounds. I must have done something wrong. But <laughs> there's somewhere, it's, you know, let's just call it 100 pounds or plus. This is a big spirit. This guy's macho. He's not weary. He's not faint. He's lifting it. He's probably pumping it like, oh yeah, David, you ready? And so he's ready to get David. And it says, it's three, so it's that heavy with bronze, who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. Ah, I see the king exhausted. He's got that posture that we all get after we take the stairs up to the, <laughs> up somewhere around here and Hands on the knees and huffing. David's got that posture. And here he comes. But, verse 17, Abishai, the son of Zeriah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Boy, how does David feel right then? He used to be the guy who attacked the giants, who went after them when everyone else was afraid. And here David was saved by someone else. When the giant came. So Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him. You can see him after the battle, all coming around him and all pointing the finger at him, saying, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Or in other words, David, if you come out to battle again, you are going to die. And then where will we be? This, mu this must, for David, this must have been the equivalent to when you have to take the keys from your parents and say you cannot drive anymore. How hard would this be? David the giant killer was almost killed by a giant, and now his men are intervening and saying, David, you're too old. It's time to move on in life. It's time to find a different chapter in life. Brothers and sisters, we kick and scream against different chapters in life. We love our abilities. We love to know our specialties. And we are so used to living life going for victories that all of a sudden, 
when these things are no longer in our grasp, we can actually lose, it's called a midlife crisis, this feeling that age is coming and we don't know what to do with it. No, it can't come for me. I'm not ready for it. Well, how does David handle it? And oh, by the way, please don't sit here and think that, oh yeah, this is for old farts, this message. It's not. It's not. And by, I'm just I'm just looking at young people and thinking what they might be thinking. Um, it's not. This message is for young people too. Because we have to have a certain viewpoint of the aged among us, but also we want to be able to age well ourselves. Now, before we look at what David does, um, I just just a disclaimer out there. Some people always look at me, and actually when I meet people all the time, I actually saw Shirley at the village. She was having um, lunch with somebody, and I walked by and said, oh, hey, and we started talking, and she's like, this is our pastor introducing me to this other lady that Shirley, you know Gus and Shirley, right? Shirley's eating with, and then she, and then, and then she, uh, Shirley, the, 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 the lady I was introduced, she said, you're too young to be a pastor, and then Shirley says, oh, but he's a good one. I had to throw that in. That's what she said. Um, and then she said, how old do you think he is? And she studies me. Now, I was wearing a mask at that moment, so perhaps she didn't see my graying beard, and perhaps you've noticed it's getting much whiter this year. Um, but she studies me, and so she's looking at the, you know, the upper part of my face, and she's like, 26. <laughs> I thought, that's fantastic, because I'm actually about 10 years older than that. But <laughs> I get it, right? You look at, most people look at me and assume, young gun. This energetic foe and reminder of my stage of life. Not quite, not quite. Um, I know I'm only, I know I'm only 35, but hold on here. Try to remember when you were 35. I understand what aging begins to feel like. I get I may be nowhere near what some of us deal with, but I have a thorn in my side called high school youth. And my day job is teaching Bible to high schoolers. Please don't imagine I'm not exposed to the feeling of aging. I am reminded on a constant basis how out of it I am. How left behind I am. But like three years ago, in my perspective, three years ago, I was all cool with my students. And like Pastor Brandon's like the only teacher that gets us. And something changed. I don't feel that way anymore at all. And we have these class discussions, and, and they're talking all the time. I, I say a phrase. I, I feel like this happens too often. Of course, part of aging is you get self-conscious about this, I guess. Uh, I say something, and there's some giggles. Does that mean something different now? And then, oh, no, it's just a meme. Oh, memes, right. Um, they all follow memes. I, I've seen a meme. I, I know what it is, at least. Um, but... All of a sudden, I'm feeling left behind. Whew, i got to get with the meme world. No, I don't. No, I don't. Grace, brace yourself, Brandon. Brace yourself. It, so we, we all in different phases know what it's like to feel like our abilities aren't what they used to be, or our specialties aren't as admired as they once were, and our victories are coming less frequently. That's David. That's I'm getting a taste of that. And David writes Psalm 22, apparently after this episode. I'm sorry, Psalm 18. 
because um, you, you turn the page and you see Second Samuel 22, and then it says, and David spoke. Now, the rest of chapter 21 was telling us that the rest of the giants were killed and David was not one of the warriors that killed him. What's happened here? David, don't let the lamp of Israel be snuffed because you can't admit there's a new phase of life for you. So David had to pass the torch on. He had to pass it on to his other soldiers whom he had been bringing up. There was a time for David to say, okay, I've shown you what to do, now do it. And his other soldiers take care of the giants. So then 2 Samuel 22 says, and means it comes after the previous story, right? And David spoke to Adonai the words of this song. Okay, so now you have the background to Psalm 18. This is David coming to that moment when suddenly you realize age has taken my abilities, my specialties, and my victories. What do I do now? What do I do now? Well, you can, like King Saul, push all the younger, more promising talent away. Or... You can say, all right, let them be the soldier now. I have to find a new role. And here's the Christian vision for human flourishing. It's not that we all remain soldiers forever. There is a moment when the Christian realizes it's time for me to go from being a soldier to an elder. And Christians value elders Elders are something that once upon a time in a pre-modern world, societies looked up to. They said elders have been in the battlefield. They know how to fight the wars we're in the middle of. We need the elder to lead us. But in our youth worshiping culture, the elder is thrown out. The elder has no place. I don't want to make that mistake. And I don't want, I don't want to say there's no place for elders in this church. Are you kidding me? I'm in the midst of praying for how God wants to see us move forward in the post-COVID world. Yes, we're in a new world, it seems. And he's showing me things that we need to do as a church. And I'm realizing I need to be surrounded by elders, not just people who are older than me. That doesn't make you an elder. But people who have been through the battle and recognize that God has called them to a new chapter. It's the people who recognize things are breaking down, but I see that it's only built, breaking my soul in. I need people around me like that. And I want to develop a vision and a, and a place for every sage, every elder in our fellowship. I don't... And I, I don't know if you guys have ever thought this, but I think sometimes people see young pastors like, oh, he just wants to make a young church now. I actually abhor the existence of churches that are all 30 and below. I think that that is very unbiblical and it is not wise. God never called us to be sectioned into ages. He called us to be a family and families need the grandparents and the parents. It needs more than teenagers and young adults. I cherish the broad diversity of age. And yes, we need more youth, but we also need more roles for elders. We need both, 
And I plan in 2021 that we will go forward with something like this. Anyways, I wasn't going to give you guys a vision pitch tonight. Um, because I'm still praying through that. Um, where, where was I? Um, right, we need, we need, we need elders. And David, David in this psalm is transitioning from soldier to elder. Verse 1. Let's go through the psalm. I love you, Adonai, my strength. Adonai is my rock. We'll pause. You might have noticed already, verse 1 wasn't in 2 Samuel 22. It's from verse 2 on that it's the exact same psalm. Verse 1 is different. It's added on apparently later. We might come back to that. Verse 2. Adonai is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. You can hear David, right? I used to be that rock. In fact, I had two of them right here. Um, But now it's Adonai. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. You see the growth and the maturity David gains through these experiences. He's my my God, my strength. I think the New King James says, the ESV puts it as rock. And actually the Hebrew is rock, but I think some translations wanted to make it less redundant because we already said rock. But nonetheless, my God, my rock, my strength, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. Now that's not the trombone. It's a bull with the horns. It was strength, right? The bull, the ox, It has strength. The horn was always a symbol in the Bible of power. So he is the horn. He's the strength, the power of my salvation, my stronghold. So there you go. If we don't count rock twice, he just gave seven adjectives to God as his strength. My rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, and my stronghold. So, with those seven adjectives, what does he do? Verse 3. I call upon Adonai, who is worthy to be praised. Why is he worthy? He's my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my refuge, my shield, my horn, my stronghold. And I am saved from my enemies. He prayed. Now, here's what I wish to know. I wish to know how much of this psalm is David looking back as an older man, recognizing a transition is happening in his life. His body is breaking down, but his soul is just breaking in, and he's reviewing the past events. So is this psalm just a review of his life to pass down? Or is this psalm somewhat deeply and directly connected to what he experienced when that giant came to him with his 100-pound shaft of a spear. Was David in that moment calling upon the Lord? (gasps) I recognize I'm weak. I can't do it. This is my end. I call upon Adonai who's worthy to be praised. And I was saved. Abishai came right in the nick of time and saved me. I don't know. Maybe it's a mixture of both. And I would propose so, that this event of David's near death so rattled him 
He recognized the need to put this down on paper. And it's also not just an account of that battle in which he was spared, but it's an account of all the times that God had been his rock, his refuge, his strength, his stronghold, his horn, all the times through his life that David came near death, but was spared. This is an old King David, the old soldier hanging up the sword and passing something down to his offspring, to the nation. And now we get the account of how God has always been his rescuer. Verse four, this gets very poetic. The cords of death encompassed me. So he's wrapped around being choked by death as if it came in and it wrapped him up with these chains. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The torrents, like the flood and the way it destroyed the world. Death came like a torrent, like a flood, and it, and it sought to destroy David. Now notice the torrents, the fluidity, the instability, the changing of the, the water image there. And how it's in direct contrast with the God who's my rock, my stronghold. This big bastion of granite that I go hide myself in, right? God is the stable one in a fluid, uncertain, changing world. The torrents of destruction assailed me. Verse 5, the cords of Shul. Remember, Shul's the place of the dead. And the Jews in the Old Testament of David's time didn't have the clearest vision of the afterlife. So it was just this shadowy, terrible place where you just have no life anymore. He did believe that he would someday be with God, but thought that once you die, you're just in this terrible shadowy place. That's Shul. Um, the cords of Shul entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, verse 6, I called upon Adonai. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Then, this is what happens when God hears us. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the mountains trembled and quaked. The foundations of the mountains trembled and quaked. This, this is their, they're thinking of the very bedrock of the planet itself. Creation, what God has made, the core of it is being shooken. This is big stuff when the creator is coming to intervene for his, for his king. Smoke went up from his nos, oh, whoops, let's see, the foundations also, verse seven, of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. Whew, you don't want to be David's enemy right now. He, God, bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on cherubim and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. 
And out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. So we have this image of the heavens being ripped open and revealing Adonai on his chariot of cloud, of storm cloud. Not just puffy little, we see the cherubim with their little clouds. Ooh, so beautiful. This is dreadful doom and destruction clouds. And he's writing it. And the cherubim, not the naked cute ones you see on birthday cards, or I don't know where you see them, but um, not those cherub. These are, the, these are the gods. Remember, we looked at this in Psalm 15. The cherub were God's bodyguards. They were the ones who barred the way from the tree of life after Adam and Eve had sinned and left the garden. What did God do? He sent cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. When Israel had God's presence in the tabernacle in their midst, what did God do? He put up a veil so that no one could just barge into his presence because now it's sinful man. We don't just walk into the garden of Eden anymore. The veil was there blocking God's throne from just anybody barging in. And what was sewn on the veil? The cherubs, the cherubim. They were there, God's bodyguards. On the Ark of the Covenant itself, where God's throne was set on earth, the cherubim spread their wings over it. Again, the bodyguards. And here they come. They're, God's not riding a chariot with horses. He's riding a chariot of storm clouds pulled by these cherubim. And it says hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. So he's coming forth with this volley of attack. It's not just bows and arrows. It's thunderbolts. It's hailstone. It's fire. It's God summoning all of the heavens into his power here. Verse 13. Adonai, here's where I got the thunderbolt, by the way. Adonai also thundered in the heavens and the most high uttered his voice hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. They're all in panic. They're fleeing from before Adonai's presence. Um, Verse 15, Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, Adonai at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. The last time the channels of the sea were laid bare was the Exodus. It said that the the wind blew over. A wind from the east came and blew over the Red Sea all night. The word there, by the way, is the same word. It's ruach. It's the same word when it says the spirit hovered over the waters in creation. It's the same word in, in Genesis 9 when God sent a wind to blow over the floodwaters and they began to recede. And so the Ruach again comes and blows over the Red Sea. And it parts. And, and there, the channels of the sea, the, the bare floor, it says it was dry ground, is exposed. And do you remember how they sang of that moment in Exodus? It happens in Exodus 14. They sing of it in Exodus 15. They referred to it as the blast of God's nostril. What an image. I don't need to demonstrate for you how to blast something out of your nostril. And I don't want to. But you can imagine, this is what Adonai does. When he brings his wind, he can part the very ocean in two. And so the same language is used here. 
David is being delivered as Moses and Israel was delivered from the Egyptian armies. Um, albeit he probably wasn't necessarily literally at the Red Sea or at the ocean. This is, he just, he's calling, he's pulling on all the highlights of Israel, right? And saying, look, God delivered me like he delivered them. Verse 16, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Oh, and we should, by the way, think of waters as he had already said, the torrents of destruction in verse four had assailed me. So the waters here is the poetry for danger for destruction and so there you go he took me he drew me out of many waters or dangers he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me for they were too mighty for me that must be a hard phrase to pen i don't have the same abilities i don't have the same specialties in fact i didn't even have this victory Who's he giving it all to? God. Or as the Hebrews call him, Adonai. Verse 18, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but Adonai was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And friends, there it is. This is David's soldier becoming an elder. He recognizes that God didn't rescue him because I'm a good king. Or I'm important. Or I prayed just right. Or it was that extra, it, it was that extra pinch of incense I put in the temple before the battle. Boy, we can think like that sometimes. Even though we know better, we can think that way. David has come to the conclusion when he, be, he realized who he really is. I am not the warrior I had always been. In that moment, he recognizes that God's deliverance had nothing to do with any of his abilities, his specialties, and his victories. Nothing to do with that. But everything to do with the fact that he delighted in me. That's why he rescued me. Listen, Israel, listen, descendants and future kings, listen, future people of God. He rescues because he delights, period. He loves us. It doesn't just, sometimes I think, oh yeah, God loves us because he's God. He's just kind of this being of love and he made us. He's got to tolerate us. Absolutely not. He delights in us. The reason the Garden of Eden was Eden by the way, Eden means delight. That's what it means. It's the Hebrew for delight. The reason he delight, the reason Eden was delight is because God got to have intimate fellowship with humanity. Heaven and earth were not apart. They were together. And God, David recognizes he tilted the heavens down. He came to my situation because he delights in being with his people. And it's sad, isn't it, when we realize this later in life rather than sooner? God delights to be with us. Let's learn this now. He actually wants to hear you call to him. He wants you to bug him with your questions. 
He doesn't mind that you're scratching on the door while you're trying to do stuff in the bathroom. I'm relating this to being a parent and kids. Sometimes we don't delight in every opportunity our kids bring us, do we? But God isn't bothered by any of that. There's no bad time, never a bad time. I delight, so I'm going to rescue. Verse 20, Adonai dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. And you're going, wait, wait a minute. Didn't he just say he rescued me because he delighted me? Now he's saying he rescued me because I was righteous, my hands are clean. Surely not, David. Surely not. Bathsheba, uh, uh, her husband, Uriah, um, David. No, surely not. But here's what David understands. David understands that God delights in us despite our sin because we are righteous before God. Not because David says, oh yeah, totally, I got, I'm nailing this king thing. I'm nailing this being a perfect example to my nation thing. No, David understands that God sees through the sacrifices his righteousness. And now the Christian understands that through Christ, our eternal sacrifice, sacrificed once for us, that through him, God sees us as righteous. And so we can say, God rescued me because he delighted in me. Oh, he also rescued me because I'm perfect. I'm perfect. In Christ, I'm perfect. And in Christ, I'm rescued. So Adonai dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. This is becoming a mature vision of his walk with God. And I have kept the ways of Adonai, and I have not wickedly departed from my God For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So Adonai has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. And there's no other way to understand that than David must have had some sense that God was seeing humanity, his people, through. He would not have known the name Jesus yet. But through some sort of provision, God was able to look at this king who had messed up terribly, this king who had every right to be dethroned, and yet God rescued him again and again and again. God, you must see something. You must see something right in me. And friends, he sees something right in you too. I feel broken. We feel broken. We feel like we're getting things wrong left and right. But God sees Christ in us. He doesn't see my failure. But, but, verse 25, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. With the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Interesting. I'm merciful. So God shows himself merciful. I'm pure. He shows himself pure. I'm crooked. So he shows himself torturous to me. (laughs) It's almost like, it's almost like people see God through the lens of who they are. They see God through the lens of who they are. How many times you see people rant and rage against God 
and you sense there's some anger there, right? There's some anger there. We, we, Dr. Guy and I had this uh, little email discussion in which he pointed out what I've seen too is that atheists often are angry at God. And often we can see God through the lens of how we feel about life. And sometimes they're not just angry at God because of God. They're angry at God because of something else that happened. They're blaming it on him. And so now you see this terrible monster that nobody should believe in. Nobody should believe in God anymore. That's my stance. Or maybe more down to earth with us here. We don't believe God delights in us. Why? Because we're not delighting in him? Or we're afraid to come before him, to be open and unashamed before him because we haven't been living right. And so you see, you know you're not in a good place when God seems torturous to you, when God does not seem delightful to you. You know that you are in a bad place. And so that's the time for us to be open with God and say, Okay, I know, I, I've blown it. But I also know that in Christ, you have forgiven me. And now we can restore relations. We can see him rightly and let him delight in us. And so yes, we are all right in Christ. But sometimes we have to recognize that we haven't been right, but we can be made right in Christ. And by recognizing that, God shows himself to us in the position we find ourselves in. Am I in a position of sin? Yep, I'm afraid. Am I in the position of Christ? Yes. The one who takes me to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Christ, God is a delight. God is wonderful. God is pure. God is safe. God loves me. He's working all things together for my good. So we see in verse 27, you save humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. See, it takes humility to say, all right, we've been wrong, but in Christ we're made right. 28, for it is you who light my lamp. David, don't go back out to battle because the lamp of Israel will be snuffed out. And David's like, yeah, I can't do it. God's, God's keeping my lamp going. Um, you light, where am I? You light my lamp. Adonai, my God, lights my darkness. For by you, verse 29, I can run against the troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. You sure, David? You sure? You couldn't quite get through that last battle. Yes, but perhaps in the past, perhaps in the past, David recognizes, I've hit some extraordinary luck in life. And that's what culture says. David would say, I've hit some amazing divine appointments. I've hit some amazing opportunities that God has opened up for me. He has given me these moments where it looks like I can leap over a wall. He's given me strength in the time of need. And maybe now even, God's giving him strength in a different way as he's moving to the second half of his life. For it is, um, verse 30, this God, his way is perfect. The word of Adonai proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but Adonai? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. 
He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. David looking back and recognizing God has been the reason I was ever victorious as a warrior. He taught me all these things. You have given, verse 35, me a shield the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me. Your gentleness made me great. You have a wide place for my steps. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet for you. There's a time in our lives when we boast about what we've done. And then there's a time when we recognize I've met my limits. It was God all along. It was God all along. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. Verse 40. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. And those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to Adonai, but he did not answer them. You can imagine that verse saying, as they saw him coming down in his terror, they cried out, oh, sorry. He's like, verse 42, I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. Possibly it refers to, um, before you had flushable toilets, you would put your waste out in the street. That's where it went. And so, yep, that was what my enemies became like. The waste in the streets. 43, you delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. So now other nations are coming to David the king. What's happening here? It's almost like you see a different king that David's speaking about. It's almost like he's getting these eyes for the future as he's come to his second phase of life. He's seeing the king, Christ and the nations who were coming to Christ and serving him. 44, as soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Here's his conclusion. Mark it down. These are, so for 2 Samuel 22 is where this psalm is. 2 Samuel 23 is David's last words. So what does this mean? These are David's penultimate words. His second to last words. It says, here's his conclusion. Adonai lives. And blessed be my rock. And exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. Who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this... 49. For this I will praise you, Adonai, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king. He shows steadfast love to his anointed. That is, to David and his offspring, or his seed, forever. Whoa, this got cool at the end. I mean, it, not that it wasn't cool. As 
David's reveling in his soldier days and portraying God as this amazing warrior who comes on his behalf, he then begins reflecting very differently. And he concludes, Adonai lives. And for this, I will praise you. Verse 49. This is his conclusion. Look, I was a soldier. Now I'm an elder. So what am I going to do? I'm going to tell people my story. I'm going to tell them about the many battles I've been through. I'm going to tell them about how I was once this amazing strapping lad. But don't think about me like that. What was really going on there was God, 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 God was behind all of it. That's my story. And I'm going to share it. I'm going to tell the generations that God came to my defense, that God was the one who taught me to war, that God, or in other words, in our language, maybe perhaps, God's the one who taught me to be successful in life so that those younger, more arrogant, maybe haven't quite learned that there's limits to their being, haven't quite realized they're going to die one day, youth, (laughs) um, that they will recognize Perhaps we can start looking at our life differently. And it takes the elder, friends, it takes the elder to help the younger see properly. So here's how youth look at life. And you perhaps know this, of course. You think that there's somewhere to go. The elder realizes, I've been there and there's nothing there. The youth thinks there's something to do. David, the activist, has become David, the psalmist, and said, I did it all. And it meant really not much. Youth are focused on the victories they need to become someone great. And David has won every victory there is to be won and says, only God is great. This is why we need elders. And this is why we need to learn from David. What does it look like to go from soldier to elder? It's totally okay. And actually necessary and needed for there to be Christians in the church today who say, I'm going to stop trying to be the soldier. I mean, let's be real. I'm not that anymore. I'm the elder. Because we need people showing the soldiers what is really happening behind everything that they think they got a handle on. We need to see a sage, not age. The elder is the person who lives his days to lead others to praise. The elder is the person who lives his days to lead others to praise. He's not living his days for victory anymore. That's behind him. He's living his days to lead others in praise. So verse 49, he says, For this I will praise you among the nations and sing to your name. And then he, of course, is passing it down to David and his offspring forever. See, what you have going on in this psalm is not just poetry. We see God with these dark clouds, the chariot clouds, the thunderbolts, and everyone's scattering, ah, and his nostril breaking forth the seas, and, and, and the cherubim leading this whole thing on, and people saying, ah, oh, don't, and he's like, too late. Like, all of this that David sees, yes, it's very poetic, it's very powerful, but what you're actually seeing is David has learned to become a bit more mystical in his relationship with God. Now, when I say the word mystical, I understand that there's all kinds of weird gurus that may become in your mind when I say that. But the truth is, Christianity has believed in the mystical ever since its beginnings. David did too. So don't let the secular world change your mind about that. 
What is a mystic? What does it mean David's become mystical? It means that he's become more than material, more than physical. Youth are often about their strength, their appearance, everything around them. What can I get? What can I earn? Where's my status? But the mystical looks beyond the material to see not just the play on the stage, but I wonder who's pulling the strings behind the curtain. I wonder who's directing everything back there. Who's really got a handle on what I'm seeing on the stage? That's the sage, if you will. Wondering what's behind the stage. What's going on back there? Mystical is when the veil is lifted for you and you see what's behind the material. David could very well be explaining Abishai coming to his deliverance when he talks about God in verses 7 through 8 and 19. When he talks about him as this big warrior, is David describing Abishai? Is David looking back and saying, wait a minute, those times when I thought, oh, I just got lucky. Or it was my great strategy that made sure that arrow missed me. Or is David now looking back and realizing that was God. God was in that. And friends, we need elders today who have the mystical vision. And generally that comes with experience and age. Because you have to look back on something. No, God was in that. And, and when, I, when I'm looking at what you're going through, lad... I think that God is behind this somewhere. And we're trying to help people see beyond this materialism. We need that today. We need to look past the COVID restrictions. We need to look past uh, the danger of the Democrats to our nation or uh, the rowdy Republicans. Will they just be quiet? We need to look past these things. It's not a political battle. It's not, and COVID's been succumbed to a political battle. Everything in our nation's swallowed by a political battle. I can't wear a mask without someone saying, oh, you're voting for Joe Biden, aren't you? <laughs> Everything's political. We must be beyond, we have to have eyes that see past that. There are spiritual forces at work. And when we read David talking about all this battle stuff, someone's like, yeah, well, I might have served in the army, but, um, or someone's like, I didn't. I wasn't in the war. And so we're like, how do we deal with this war language? Friends, we are in the war 24-7. The mystical eye sees this and says, this isn't just about David's battles. This is about our battle right now. This is about the spiritual battle Paul says that we must stand in. This is about the spiritual armor that we must gird ourselves in. And we need the elders who have worn the armor, who for some, it feels a little stiff. I, I don't know how to work this glove. <laughs> we need the elder to say, I know how to work it. Let me teach you. Or this is how you use it. Remember David walking in Saul's armor? Yeah, he couldn't do it. He took it off. But see, a true elder says, oh, I'm not going to put my name on you. My Sometimes we do that, though, with kids and younger people. We want our old glory to live on in them. Don't give them your armor. Teach them how to use their armor based on what you've learned through your armor. This is what elders do, and this is why we need you and People who are still under 30, 
We need you to start looking to at how do I age to become a sage? How do I begin to see God in my victories? Because you know what? Becoming an elder is not, it's not like, oh, 65, I'm an elder. Don't let the government tell you when and when you're not. An elder can be a 32-year-old. Could. Now, granted, a 32-year-old still has more to learn, right? Let's not kid ourselves. I still have more to learn, right? Let's not kid ourselves. But that 32-year-old may be more of an elder than the 82-year-old who continues to look on the past not to inspire hope in the present, but to compare the present and how much worse it is to those old tent days when God moved in the Jesus movement. Oh, today, none of the churches get it. None of them get it. I just don't go to any of them anymore. No one can ever do what God did back then. Or they change things. Or Hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sit down. Let's let's move from soldier. See what you're trying to do there is you're trying to change everything. You're still trying to draw the sword and go at him. Be the elder. And lead us through your stories. Right? Yep, things aren't the way they used to be. It's part of what is really hard about getting older. But we can be part of the solution. And David sees himself as the one who's going to pass all of this down. So, okay, it's getting late. I think I've been going a while. but So let's get to the end of this here. Um, one of the ways we need to do this is verse 50. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. That's the word Messiah in the Hebrew. Christ in the Greek. David says, you deliver your anointed. This is ultimately a Jesus psalm who on the cross was at the mercy of the powers of death and then was rescued. Not, of course, until God let his body break down and so that now Christ is our high priest. Christ is our ultimate elder. Christ is the one we can learn from. And friends, as we decide to ask Christ to teach us how to move from soldier to elder, we will see verse 1 get added to everyone's life. Remember I said verse 1 is not in the 2 Samuel 22 chapter? I love you, Adonai, my strength. What happened there? Let me throw this out there. Take it or leave it. Maybe when they were compiling the Psalms, one of the scribes who's putting it all, you know, stapling the whole thing together, maybe he read this one and said, Because David taught me how to see God in my life, I want to write a little tribute. I love you, Adonai, my strength. We know David didn't put that in there because it wasn't in 2 Samuel 22. Maybe someone else did. Because here's ultimately the elder's role. Help people love God. Not believe God. Demons believe God. A demon can teach you to do that. Love God, not serve God. Any activist can do that. How to love God. Not preach or share God or study God. Love God. Because though those other things are not, uh, those other things are important, serving him and, um, I don't remember what I said anymore, studying him, um, believing in him, although those things are important, none of them matter if you don't love God. 
And the elder teaches a church, this is why we should love him. And they share their life. That is love. And so here we see added, I love Adonai my strength. This is the goal, friends. Share your love. Not what you know, not what you've done, your love. And clearly that came through David because it was added to the psalm. So, are we going to be stuck in the material world? Are we going to have eyes of the mystical elder? Are we going to allow God to shape the church with leaders who've moved from soldier to elder? Are we going to keep thinking it's all about victories? Or are we going to learn that victories are not all there is to life? Victory is recognizing who has done the victories on our behalf. And so, Lord, as we take now your provision to us,